It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday. We're getting a real echo. That's Thursday, May 20th. 2010. You got to get rid of those. You're gonna have to get rid of those. We're getting a big echo. We got a lot of new equipment working tonight, Jacob. We do. So we'll hopefully it won't give us too many problems. But we'd like to hear from you if you have any comments about our setup. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. You have to take your headphones off. Am I talking slow? Yeah. Y'all let you. We'll leave that. And we've got a we've got a new sound booth and. Uh, We've, We've got, got some gentlemen testing that tonight, that tonight and, uh, and, and they'll, they'll be driving it, so we'll leave the audio up to them tonight. And so we, we got some new video software, software working. We got, uh, we got multiple cameras. We're trying to expand our video capabilities. We've got some new equipment, and we're just using it for the first time. And so there's going to be some bugs to work out. If you, if you are getting some problem on your end, Send us a, a message in the chat room or by email. Uh, give us a heads up if you see something that's not happening. Uh, if there's some quality problem with the sound or the video, we'd be glad to hear from you. We do have a microphone on the guys back there. Anthony, how does it sound tonight? Can you hear me okay? Well, I can't hear you at all. Oh, that's right. Well, I can hear myself. It's, uh, there is a little delay in my earpiece here, but... Um, uh, look, hopefully we're uh, coming out loud and clear over the Internet. Okay. All right. All right. Give us some feedback. If you're out there listening, give us some feedback to how it sounds on your end. 877-381-4567 is the number to call or send an email to questions at collegeu.com. Jacob, for our topic tonight, while those guys play with all that new equipment, we, let's get started into our study. You know, it's going to be nice for us because we don't, uh, we don't have to mess with that now. We can just talk. Yeah, we can, we can concentrate on the Bible study and on your comments in the chat room, on your emails that you send us. Remember the contact info. Uh, you can get to us by telephone right away. Uh, the toll-free number is 877-381-4567. Send us an email to questions at collegeview.com or get in the chat room. Now, if you have never been in the chat room before, you've got to sign up for a free little membership. All you have to do is give them a username and a password, and you're in. And you can participate in the chat room. We have a lot of fun in there, and we get a lot of immediate comments from people via the chat room. Our, Our topic, topic for study tonight, Jacob, is smorgasbord. We're, we're going all over the place. We have been collecting. We have been no. We've been collecting uh, questions from our listeners and keeping them uh, sort of keeping a log of them for a long time. We haven't done this for a while, so tonight, since we're sort of in the experiment mode with our new video equipment, we thought we would do some of these questions that have been piling up that have come in. There's uh, and I sent out to our update list today. Earlier, I sent out 12 questions. I'm not going to read them all here because it would just be confusing to read that many all at once. But we're going to work our way through. And uh, if you're in the chat room, you can respond immediately, or you can send us an email, and we'll try to get it. We're going to have to move fast. I sent out 12 questions, Jacob. If we spent an equal amount of time on each one, we would have less than five minutes on each question. So we're going to have to hustle. Yeah, there's no way we're going to get through them. We probably won't get through them all. We'll try. Let's start out with the very first question that we sent out to our update list earlier today. 
This question came, by the way, the first uh, three or four of these came from Eric, who's been listening in Minnesota. Eric, we're glad that you've been listening in Minnesota. Yeah, from Eric. And uh, he is a college student, and some of his questions will have to do with that. He says, history professors oftentimes try to discredit the Bible with the topic of slavery. How should Christians answer this challenge? And, and so, so I think the idea of that, that as I've heard, what Eric is referring to, is they say, well, you know, the Bible tolerated slavery. It never condemned slavery. It never came out and said slavery was wrong. You've got to quit doing that right away. Therefore, it was it refer, referencing a, a time in which people were bigoted, racist. And, and they allowed it to continue. And so it's a, it's a crime against humanity, and the Bible did not condemn it, so therefore there must be some flaw in the Bible. Right. That's the argument that is sometimes made. And uh, how should we answer that? We've got uh, some responses. Our friend Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, has written in and said, since the Bible was provided by God for people in every land and every culture, God provided guidelines for how all people should be treated, male, female, young, old, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. And I think he's right about that. While the Bible didn't condemn slavery, it did regulate how slaves were to be treated. You know, the Bible is not a book. Jesus, for instance, didn't come with the idea of, social reformation in mind. He came teaching people how to live godly lives. And in doing that, if people live godly lives, then all social injustices, all bad things like slavery will ultimately end as people live by the godly principles that are taught in God's Word. And I really think that over the last 2,000 years, we see evidence of that. Because slavery is not as predominant. It still happens in the world, but it's not as predominant as it was in those times. And I think that the, the application of biblical principles has affected that social matter. Okay. Um, so the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery. Now, there are uh, slaves mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, there are Christians who were mentioned as having slaves. And, and they're, they're not condemned, condemned in that. How would you explain but, that? Well, uh, uh, we know a couple of men who were involved in that sort of relationship. Philemon, to whom the book of Philemon is addressed, and his slave Onesimus. Correct. And Onesimus actually was converted at a time in which he was a runaway from his master. Okay. He was sent back to his master. But his master was instructed, receive him and treat him right. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we see in, in the New Testament in particular. For instance, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, beginning verse 5, it says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. The word servant there, we would better translate slaves. Slaves, obey your masters. But before Paul got done talking about that, he said in verse 9, Ye masters, do the same things to them, to your slaves, forbearing, threatening, Knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there any respect of persons with him. And so he said, slaves obey your masters and work hard for them. And masters, treat your slaves right, knowing that you're going to be held accountable for how you treat them. Uh, same thing is said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give to your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, again, uh, instructions to masters. How would you explain it? Well, I, I think that the idea of it is that principles were being set down that would ultimately lead to, first of all, immediately it would lead to the right treatment of slaves as people lived by the principles, as masters lived by the principles of the Bible. But 
broader concepts of the scripture, like love for fellow man and so forth, uh, right treatment of your neighbor and all of those kind of things, when put into ultimate practice would result in the end of slavery just by virtue of, of those concepts in practice. I have a little bit different take on it, uh, but and, uh, my take is not backed up with any kind of uh, historic evidence. But uh, we also we know that uh, there was a type of uh, servitude uh, in times past of indentured uh, servants, where if you had a debt or, and that you couldn't pay, you could become someone's servant. Or you could, uh, as when people were coming to America, you, you could indent yourself, yourself for the passage to America, to America and then agree that when you got here for, you for the next number of years, perhaps, you would be someone's servant. Could it be that uh, the instructions to masters with relationship to their servants in the New Testament is talking about that kind of, of, of uh, service? Well, it's possible. And in fact, Pat in Harvest, Alabama, has written that answer and said the only kind of slavery condoned in the New Testament is voluntary slavery such as to pay off debts. Men stealers, he says, uh, is condemned in passages like 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, where it mentions men stealers. He says that's the kind of thing that was going on between America and Africa, and it is condemned in the Scriptures. That kind of slavery is condemned. And we know that that is a lot of what happened. People were stolen away in Africa and brought to the New World to serve as slaves. And Pat makes the point that that is condemned uh, in a passage like First Timothy chapter one verse ten. Matthew chapter eighteen, though, the story of the man who was forgiven much, uh, in verse twenty-five, for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. Now, here's the only thing: I I I, I have sympathy to that view, but I don't believe that all. Uh, I, I think it would be hard to prove that all slavery mentioned in the Bible was of that nature. For instance, the case we mentioned a minute ago about Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus obviously wasn't voluntarily. He ran away from Philemon. Well, but he could have, he could have entered into that relationship voluntarily, and then he decided he didn't like it, and he didn't want to stay in it, and yet he was obligated. Correct. Then the same to me. Same, you know, say I, I decide I want to, uh, I want to buy a new car. I don't have the money, so I say I'll work for you for, for five years for the car. And after two years, I decide I'm tired of working for you. I could run away from you, take the car and go, take the car and go, and then I would still be in debt. So there's an explanation. For that. Yeah, that's possible. But I do think that Pat's uh, explanation is a good one, uh, in which the abuses of slavery are condemned. Uh, really, in the passage he suggested, First Timothy 1:10, but in the other passages in Ephesians chapter uh, six and Colossians chapter four. Even when there was that relationship, and however it got there, either voluntarily or non-voluntarily, however the relationship was established, it was regulated, and those who lived by such regulations would be would be in much better shape than the abuses that we commonly think of with slavery. Real quickly, Johnny in Leoma says, we have been conditioned to think that slavery was a horrid thing. God does not condemn slavery as we do. If we had more time, I could expound. If I had more time, I could expound on this further. We try to make God. Ruler the same as ours, but God has his own set of rules. If you get down to it, no matter what you think, we are all slaves of something. Sure, we can possess. Sure, we can possibly do some things of our own choice, but you are a slave of somebody. Uh, how about you decide not to pay your taxes? In other words, you were slave to the government, is what he's saying. Uh, 
If you are a Christian, then you are a servant of God. You are serving someone, thus making you a slave. Again, we try to make God fit our standards. There's nothing wrong with biblical slavery. Yes, there is biblical slavery, is what Johnny says. All right, so we've already taken more than our allotted time on the first question, Jacob. But there's some thoughts about slavery. And Eric, if you get challenged uh, in, in your... Uh, college classes, hopefully something we said there might be a help to answer that question. Jim in Mount Pleasant says, since the Bible was provided by God for people in every land and every culture, God provided guidelines for how all people should be treated, male and female, young and old, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. Yeah, I read that one. You did? Yeah, you don't think you were listening. I read that one. Okay, well, I, I can't hear you because I don't have my headphones on. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a break already? Or we Let's take a break. We don't have time to get another one in, and we maybe can resolve some issues at the break. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. Are we ready for a break? We, okay, we are. We're going to take a break, and when we get back, we hope to hear from you. Give us a call, send us an email. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The Virtual Bible Study will be back right after this. I'm Greg Gwynn, a host of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for tonight's program. The Virtual Bible Study is presented weekly by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on the Virtual Bible Study, we simply engage in the study of God's Word in an effort to better understand it, better understand how God views us, and better understand what He wants from us in our lives. We're not studying any creeds. We're not studying any books written by men. We're just studying the Bible. And we're trying to study the Bible alone without any of our opinions or wisdom mixed in. We're only interested in what our Creator has revealed to us in his word. We realize that we're fallible and cannot direct our own steps. As a result, what we think or feel doesn't really matter. All that matters is what God has said. So that's what the virtual Bible study is all about. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we'll hope you'll make plans to join us every Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. Wow, this internet thing is really growing. And what could be better than using the internet for Bible study? I guess that's what they were thinking when they dreamed up the virtual Bible study. Good idea, don't you think? Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And, and welcome back, back to, to the virtual Bible, Bible study tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. We still have an echo, but hopefully you're able to listen. Uh, let us know if you're, if you're in the chat room or if you can send us an email. Let us know if uh, uh, you're hearing any. Uh, problem with the audio. Uh, Jared in, in uh, Cookville says audio is okay. On the commercials, but maybe not while we're talking. Audio okay on the commercials. Okay. And I got a, I'm getting an email from Howard in Medina, Tennessee. Says wants to know how do you get to the chat log on. All right, Howard. Here's how you do it. In our uh, if you're watching us from our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. In the bottom right uh, of the video uh, portion of your screen, there'll be a menu button. And if you click on the menu, then uh, it'll make the video smaller, and you'll have a button where it says Go to Show Page. If you go to Show Page, then uh, that will take you to our Ustream.tv page where the video will pop up again, and then the chat room will be on your right-hand side. If you want to chat in that uh, in that uh, chat room, you'll need to have a log on tonight, and you can get a free account there at Ustream.tv. Uh, Jared says there's still an echo on the audio, not an echo on the commercials, just on our audio. So we're going to have to work on that. Okay, we will work on that. And hopefully it's not too obnoxious for you and you can uh, listen to us tonight as we still work through some bugs and some issues. Okay. Let's go to our second question quickly as we try to work through some listener questions tonight. second question is, what are some tips for growing close to Jesus when one is far from brethren? Uh, that's an interesting question. And sometimes, and sometimes Christians find themselves in that sort of predicament, Jacob, where they are far away from other Christians. And I really believe, and I think is implied in the question, that God intended for our relationship <coughs> excuse me, with other Christians to be a kind of thing that we draw strength from, that we uh, 
we, we help one another. We're an encouragement to one another. We even correct one another when we're in error. So that is a part of God's design for Christians in the body of Christ. What do you do when you're not near them? Maybe the business trip has taken you far, far away, or uh, maybe you're off in college, like I think maybe Eric is suggesting. How do you draw close to when you're to Jesus when you're far away from brethren? All right, uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant has some ideas for us. Uh, he says. Um, no matter where one is or what situation they're in, reading the scriptures, Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen, and praying will always help one grow. Studying with non-Christians can also help foster opportunities to convert the lost and thereby create new brethren, which then would alleviate the problem. Good thoughts from uh, from Jim tonight. I think so. Thank you, Jim. We appreciate that. You know, there are some things available to people today that wouldn't have been available just a few years ago. For instance, the internet. And, and you, you can, can you can stay in contact with people much easier, and you can get some some strength building kind of things like the virtual Bible study and other things. Lots of churches have content on the internet, uh, sermons to listen to, uh, other Bible study helps. So, uh, avail, I would encourage someone to avail themselves of those kind of opportunities. Uh, but ideally, we want to be where fellow Christians are. And one of the points I'd have to make before I, I pass from that question, Jacob, is that we need to think about those kind of things before we get there, if possible. In other words, if I'm going to, if I'm offered a job and it may be a fantastic job and the pay may be outrageously high, and yet if I know it's going to take me to a place where there are no fellow Christians, where I'm going to be completely isolated from, from brethren, I think a Christian would have to take that into consideration and say, probably I'm not going there. I'm not going to take that high-paying job because the spiritual problems outweigh by far the material benefit I would get by going. All right, absolutely. And we need to make our spiritual health a priority, just as we would our physical health. You know, I wouldn't take a job. Uh, if, I had a, if I had a choice in the matter, I wouldn't take a job that was going to harm my physical health. And most people would try and avoid that. Uh, but, but maybe, maybe we, we don't, don't uh, give enough thought to our spiritual health when we're considering those positions. Real quick, this this question, the third question ties in closely with it. What are some survival tips for college students on secular campuses? Okay. Well, that may be, and Eric's question coming from Minnesota may be that he's on a secular college campus and also far away from brethren. That's a, that's a double whammy. That makes it extra hard. Okay. So... Um, uh, uh, what, what do you think, think about that? that? What would you suggest? All right, uh, one, one comment, comment I was going to make about the previous question, and it goes well with this, is it doesn't matter where we are and how many Christians are around or our environment, it does not give us an excuse not to be pleasing and faithful to God. Paul experienced this, I think, numerous times. He mentions one of those times in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verse uh, 16, meaning, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that they may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That by, by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Paul was in a position where he was the only one trying to do what's right. right. And uh, that, you may feel like Paul on certain college campuses today. Uh, it's, it's a difficult position, but don't excuse yourself from doing what you should do. Well, yeah, I think you've got you to keep, keep your eyes wide open, because those, those college professors and others are going to try to undermine your faith. I mean, they are secularists. Most of them are unbelievers, or many of them are, I would say most, but many of them are unbelievers, and they delight in challenging a person's faith 
and, and they, they make it a part of their plan, their, their agenda, to destroy the faith of a young Christian who might come to those kinds of places. So you got if you're going there, you need to go with eyes wide open and be aware that you're entering into the lion's den. And, and be, be on your defense uh, from the get-go, because they're going to try to raise questions and sow seeds of doubt. So anticipation would be an important part of that. And then diligent study uh, and uh, certainly to associate with Christians who can help deal with those challenges when and where that's possible is also a great benefit. You know, it's just the major that you select as well um, can be uh, a determination in how much of that the pressure you'll take. Certainly there are certain majors that would be uh, more uh, disposed to those type of uh, professors who would be uh, against God and uh, trying to undermine your faith. John in Oklahoma writes in the chat room, do all you can to stay in touch with brethren, write often, email often, talk as often as you can. You will have, have to be proactive. I think John's comment. I think there, that's, that's actually uh, Jack. Um, oh, that, that is Jack. That is Jack. John Jack likes the, you know, the, giving you the credit for it. That is Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee. Jack, sorry, Jack. But that, I think the, the, the word Jack used there, proactive, is a really important thing. No, you can't just sit back. If you sit back, the tide, the, the secular tide will wash you away. You're going to have to work at it. Okay. Right. Thanks, Jack. Uh, along those lines, Jim in, in Mount Pleasant says um, some survival tips. He says in conjunction with the answers given to number two, you find, also find a good, faithful congregation to associate with and get to know the brethren. They will be a great source of encouragement. I think you're exactly right, Jim. All right, quickly, let's move on. We've got a lot of questions to get to and not very much time to get to And uh, Jack also says, I've lived far away from home on too many occasions, and it's not the best situation. Yeah, and, and I know Jack, some of the things Jack has been uh, required to do, and so he can speak from experience. And then I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. To the best of your ability, do not be in such positions that there's anything you can do to avoid it. You know, uh, try to arrange things so that you don't have to be in such situations. Then, if you're going to go to a uh, a secular college, and many Christians do, maybe one of the factors in choosing what college you go to is to find out is there a strong congregation of God's people nearby that I can draw strength from. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then one more question. These first four all came from Eric in Minnesota. He said, "What are some suggestions for small ways we can serve God?" And he suggested things like placing tracks, Bible teaching tracks, uh, praying for people, and wondered what other kind of suggestions could uh, be offered. Well, I think that's an interesting suggestion right off the, off the top there is to uh, distribute Bible tracks, hand out uh, flyers and cards, invitations to worship. Maybe invitations to participate in something like the virtual Bible study. Maybe you could get, if you're on that college campus and uh, maybe some students would be more inclined to listen to something on the internet than they would maybe to attend a Bible study in person, invite them to participate in something like the virtual Bible study. All kinds of opportunities are available there. Uh, can you think of others, Jacob? Well, well uh, I thought we might throw it over to Anthony if he has any ideas. Anthony, any ideas on small ways that we can serve God? Um, nothing's really coming to mind right now, Jacob. I have to admit, we're we're working feverishly back here on the. Oh, so you're not paying, you're paying attention to the technical, not so much to scriptural tonight. Unfortunately, tonight I've kind of been uh, speaking of servitude, pressed into service here, trying to fix this. Uh, Are you making progress? 
Unfortunately, we're still getting that echo, and we can't seem to fix that. All right. Well, just keep on. We're still your small service tonight. We got it. You know, that's one thing that we sort of compartmentalize our service to God, and it has to happen on Sunday at worship. It has to happen maybe at a midweek service or something like that. Our service to God is should encompass every part of our life. That's exactly right. You're serving God when you when you raise your family. When you take your kids to the Little League baseball game. You have an opportunity to teach in an environment like that. Uh, for instance, I was talking to some folks just this week, and they did a great thing. They pulled their kids out of uh, some youth baseball activities because there was a church meeting to attend, and, and they, wouldn't, they wouldn't compromise that. And they said later, when they've done that sort of thing in the past, people would come to them and say, you must be a Christian, and you must be a member of... of uh, such and such. Uh, people noticed. Okay. So it's a teaching opportunity. You, you teach your kids when you don't compromise spiritual things for baseball, for instance. You're teaching your kids, but other people are observing too. And you're, just, you're, you're doing the thing, setting an example. Just by virtue of your good example, that's, just, that's one kind of scenario. But anytime that you set the kind of example a Christian should, you're doing something. It may seem a little thing, but you're doing something positive for the kingdom. All right, right. Let's, uh, let's tie this question into the first one that Eric asked about slavery. Back to uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the faith, uh, flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. The instruction, knowing in verse 24, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive uh, the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Servants in that day, when they obeyed their masters, that was a service to God, as you're doing it to the Lord. The same is true for us today when we go to work, and we work as we should as a good employee. That's a small uh, way that we can serve God as we work throughout the day as God has instructed us. Yeah, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 12, having your conversation or manner of life honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So they'll see you living that Christian example. Uh, Jim Mount Pleasant says, uh, Mail invitations to gospel meetings, friends and neighbors, put business cards in lobbies of places you visit, place tracks in... Uh, in, in the Bibles, in the motels, 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 motels,
You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. Daily we receive promises that are contingent upon certain conditions. The grocery store, for instance, offers us a great price on laundry soap or soda pop, but the fine print reads, one item per customer with coupon. The gas station sign reads, free car wash, but looking closer, we see that it says, with $10 minimum purchase. At the bank, we're offered a no-service charge checking account, but we must maintain a minimum balance. Conditional statements are common in our everyday affairs. The Bible contains many wonderful promises. They are made by a loving and just God who cannot lie, Hebrews 6, verse 18. Some of his promises are unconditional. That is, they will be kept regardless of what we do. For instance, after the flood, God said, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease, Genesis 8:22. No matter what we do, that promise will be kept. Here's another. Romans 14:12 says, Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. The coming judgment, therefore, is unconditional. You don't have to do anything. It's going to happen. But other promises of God are conditioned upon our own deeds. Romans 10, verse 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Notice the important little word, if. That word shows the conditionality of the promise. God will do his part if we will do ours. We should also note that repentance and baptism are additional conditions of salvation. See Acts 2.38. And so you can trust that when God makes a promise, it will be kept. But also realize that you need to be sure you're doing your part for those conditional promises of God. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study, and we hope you'll tell others about the program. We're always open to your feedback concerning topics for discussion and suggestions as how we can make the program more effective. Drop us a line at questions at collegeview.com or call toll-free at 877-381-4567. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. There. Oh, there we go. Now we're back. Okay, we're back on the program tonight. We're trying to fix the echo during the break, and we didn't have, uh, we weren't successful. Is the echo gone? The echo's gone. All right. Okay. Uh, that's be- that is better. Some you of you who are it. listening, give us give us oh, a heads up. Oh, fixed it. Way Jack to go, says guys. it's fixed. It is fixed. We All don't right. know what we did, but don't touch it now. It's fixed. Well, problems that go away by themselves come back by themselves, but that's maybe usually the case, after the program's over. All right. Uh, everybody's giving us the yays in the chat room, so that's good. All, All right. right. All right. Good deal. Okay. We're going to quickly go to some of these other questions now. We can go uh, faster now. We don't have that echo to mess us up. That's right. Got. Uh, these next two questions came from Shelby Biker. I don't know where Shelby Biker is, but uh, Shelby Biker sent in two questions. One was about the Sabbath day. Is Saturday the Sabbath, Jacob? Yes, it is. It actually is the Sabbath day, the seventh, the seventh day. day of the week. And that's what it was defined as in the Old Testament, the seventh day. And it was a day of rest assigned to the children of Israel under the law of Moses. Now, we need to, we need to clarify that that was a part of the law that God gave to the children of Israel It was first instituted in Exodus chapter 16, beginning about verse 27, and it was a sign of it. It was was a sign of the special covenant that God had with the children of Israel. 
Uh, read Exodus 34, beginning verse 27, and you'll see that this, the Sabbath day is mentioned as one of the Ten Commandments that is a part of the covenant relationship that God had with the Jews. That covenant was never intended to be permanent. In Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning verse 31, the prophet Jeremiah said God planned to establish a new covenant. And we believe that he did. It was that covenant that came through Jesus Christ, as we read in the book of Hebrews. And so, yes, Saturday was the Sabbath of the Old Testament, the seventh day, but we are not under that Sabbath law any longer. We do not live by the requirements of the Sabbath law. We don't read about any instruction about a Sabbath day until the book of Exodus. It was not uh, given prior to then. We have no record of it. And, in fact, uh, in Colossians chapter 2, we read about the Sabbath, and we read that it has been abolished, nailed to Christ's cross. In verse uh, chapter 2 of Colossians chapter verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over in it. Now verse 16, the result of Christ nailing the Old Testament to his cross, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Okay. So we're not a, that. I think that's the best passage in the New Testament to show that specifically we're not under the Sabbath law. We're not under any of the law of the Old Testament. We still study the Old Testament and learn many valuable lessons from going there. Moral lessons are taught. The nature of God is taught. The, the, the type of obedience God desires is shown. But we're not under that law. We don't live like we live by the New Testament law of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you hear people say that that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. There's no place in the New Testament that teaches that. And we are not obligated to keep any of the requirements that were required under the Old Testament Sabbath law. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Saturday was the Sabbath. The seventh day was the Sabbath, the day of worship for Christians when they they meet together to observe the Lord's Supper, first day of the week, Sunday, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Okay. Uh, Jim says, yes, it is still a Sabbath, uh, but it, that doesn't mean it's the day of worship for Christians. All right. Quickly, the other question that came to us from Shelby Biker was, um, those who go to hell, will they burn eternally or will they be consumed and burned up? Now, sometimes you hear the word annihilation used relative to this question. You know, people who don't make it to heaven are going to go to hell. But does that just mean suddenly they are burned up, annihilated, they, their souls cease to exist? And some people teach that view. I don't agree with that view, and I would base it strongly on, on the, the wording that Jesus himself used. In Matthew chapter 25 at verse 46, Jesus was talking about, in that context, was talking about the judgment scene, and some would gain God's favor and some would be condemned. And he says... These, the condemned, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, I'm reading the King James Version there, but it talks about everlasting punishment and life eternal. But if you were to check the original language, the original Greek language, it's exactly the same Same word. word. The same word that is used to describe how long heaven will be is used to describe how long hell will be. So how how long is heaven going to be? It's going to be forever. How long will the punishment of hell be? Uh, it'll be forever. And those are Jesus' words, as you mentioned. And Jesus and Jesus gives his uh, comment on how long hell will be, and uh, he says it will be eternal. Uh, Jim in Mount Pleasant said, Jesus said it is eternal punishment. I agree, Jim. 
right. so I, I think that's a that to me that seems to be a pretty quick easy answer. I know there's been a lot written on that question, but I mean let's just take Jesus at His word. That's what He said. Let's just believe that that's the way it will be. All right, uh, Jack in the chat room back on the Sabbath question says Sabbath means seventh. So yes, Saturday is a Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for the Jews, not for us. Today we are under a new covenant. Yeah, and, and you would have to keep all of it. Uh, I think that's coming from our sound room tonight. So, all right, good. All right. Um, let's go to a question that comes, the next couple, three come from our friend Randy up in Jackson, Missouri, who wrote, which is more biblical, wine or grape juice for the Lord's Supper? That's an interesting question. You know, and I, I think sometimes we just sort of take that for granted but there are places where that kind of has been a, a, a debatable concept, and there are some places where people are pretty strong to say you must use wine, fermented uh, wine. Uh, what about that, Jacob? Any thoughts? My thought, uh, my first thought is that uh, the um, the uh, Lord's Supper was instituted during uh, the Feast of the Passover. The Feast of the Passover was a feast which required getting all leaven out of uh, out of the home. And uh, certainly uh, alcohol is uh, made with a leavening agent, and I think that that would have precluded uh, any alcoholic uh, beverage. I think that's the best explanation I could offer, too. I, I, I think that the Jews would have been, they would put all kinds of leavening agents, yeast and that sort of thing, out of their house by command. And in order for wine to be fermented, it requires a leavening agent to bring that to pass. Remember when you're studying this question, though, that... The, in the New Testament, for instance, when you read the word wine, you got to let the context tell you whether it's fermented wine or gra- what we would call grape juice, because the same word is used. Mm-hmm. And but but I would argue along the lines that you do, Jacob, that uh, during the Passover in particular, but I think in general, Christians did not partake of of alcoholic wine. I'm, I think not at all. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Timothy had to be told to take a little for a medicinal purpose. He had to be instructed to do it. In other words, indicating his normal practice was not to take any at all, which I assume would include not even in the Lord's Supper. He didn't drink alcoholic wine. And so I think we can prove that it was standard procedure for Christians of the first century not to drink intoxicating wine. And therefore, even that would indicate that in the Lord's Supper, they would use grape juice. It was called wine. They used the word wine to to indicate either grape juice or alcoholic. And uh, this is all based on an ex- uh, typically based on an assumption that it was impossible to preserve grape juice in any form other than a fermented form. That simply is not the case. History does not validate that assumption. It was possible. Furthermore, another argument that is made is, well, they had to drink alcoholic wine because the water was somehow polluted and they couldn't get... Uh, fresh drinking water. They had to drink alcoholic wine. That is simply, again, is not yeah, true. Yeah, that's right. Anybody who says they didn't have any way to preserve grape juice in unfermented form simply hadn't studied the question. Mm-hmm. They had multiple means that they used in Bible times to preserve grape juice. And, sir, and history also indicates uh, that uh, the unfermented wine was the preferred uh, beverage of choice uh, at those times. Uh, so simply, uh, that's it's, Jacob's it's, offspring trying to get in on the Bible, uh, the Bible study that's tonight. That's right. Yeah, he has a comment. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, Jim says uh, wine is alcoholic, and the type of wine we have today was unknown in bi- biblical times. Fruit of the vine is closer to grape juice than moder- than to modern wine. I'm, and I, so I don't know which I don't know which way he comes down on that. 
He says the kind of wine that we have today was unknown in Bible times. Uh, okay. I need a little more information from Jim. I, I think wine sure. today, he said, is alcoholic, and it, uh, but uh, that's not the kind of wine. Oh, okay. That's uh, right. When it, we it, use the word refined, uh, if we use the word wine today, we always mean yeah. alcoholic wine. Yeah. But it was not so in Bible times. And Johnny and Loretta says we can try to change this to fit our modern day society. We can say it means this or that. You can try to say that wine, when mentioned in the Bible, really means juice, but not so. The wine mentioned in the Bible was wine. The Bible has both good and bad things to say about wine. The Bible gives both condemnation and blessings for our uh, f- uh, for it. Our society and traditions has told us that wine in all situations is horrible. Uh, Johnny, I have to disagree with you. The Bible uses the word wine to talk about unfermented grape juice. The book of Isaiah, what is that passage in Isaiah? Um, if if Arthur's listening, Arthur will send it in to me in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's Isaiah 65, verse 8, uh, 65, as new 8, wine uh, is found in the cluster. That's right. It talks about wine while the grape is still on the vine in the cluster. It calls the juice in the grape before it's ever been squeezed out. It calls it wine. And so I, I have to disagree with Johnny on that one. Uh, the word wine does not, in the Bible, does not always mean alcoholic content intoxicating in effect. That is not so. The Bible uses the word wine uh, and you have to let the context be the determinant of that. All right. All right. And uh, it is not true that the Bible talks positively about wine. There are numerous, uh, multiple condemnations of wine and its consumption. Okay. We've got a tough question coming up, so we'll probably ought to take our last break. We've got a question. The next question we want to deal with, the next two go together. Is it okay for Christians to be pacifist or conscientious objectors? And is it okay for Christians to pledge allegiance to the flag? A couple of interesting questions. And we'll get to those as soon as we come back from this next break. Okay, we'll take a break and then go to the top of the hour. Plenty of time for your comments. Join in. We have several questions to go. We look forward to hearing from you right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. I'm Tom Goodall, a member of College Views Church of Christ. Do you have a question about what has been said on the virtual Bible study tonight? Perhaps you disagree with something that was said, or would just like more information about what you've heard. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us with any questions or comments that you might have. Email us at questions at collegeview.com, and we can discuss any of your questions or comments with you privately or over email. Or if you would like to speak with someone in person, call us at 931 381 Four five six seven. Our promise to you is that we'll do our very best to give you a Bible answer for anything that we do or teach, and that we will do so in a loving manner. So if you have any questions or comments about our program tonight or any Bible subject, email us at questions at collegeview.com or call 931-381-4567. Thanks for listening to tonight's virtual Bible study, and we hope to hear from you soon. I'm James Buchanan from Columbia, Tennessee, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. We are back on the virtual Bible study. We're glad to, to be back with you. You, and we look forward to hearing from you on some tough questions uh, that uh, we have coming up, uh, as is mentioned in the chat room, uh, some difficult questions. First one, is it okay for Christians to be pacifist or conscientious objectors? Well, my first reaction to that question is to say, well, yeah, obviously, right? I mean, it, it, it's certainly all right to be. If it, and, of course, you're, you're, you're dependent somewhat on definitions, what you mean pacifist or conscientious objector. But when, when I think of conscientious objector, that's someone who says, I don't, my conscience doesn't allow me to go participate in military warfare. 
Can I do that? Yeah. You can both do it conscientiously, and our law allows for it. And so, I mean, yeah, you can do it. I could be a conscientious objector, and there were conscientious objectors in the New Testament times uh, when it comes to eating a barbecue sandwich. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, uh, the scriptures tell us, Romans chapter 14 tells us, don't violate your conscience. Yeah, let's read that. Romans 14, 23. Uh, he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so basically there Paul was saying you got to have, it's got, if it violates your conscience, then don't do it because it becomes a sin to you if it violates your conscience. All right. So certainly it would be possible for a Christian to be a conscientious, conscientious objector. What about uh, could a Christian be a pacifist? Well, again, I'm not sure exactly how I'd want, uh, how that definition would be. What do you think, pacifist? That, all, that not only is it wrong for me, but it's also wrong for everybody else. Is that, is that what? I don't know. I don't, maybe, I don't know if it's that broad. I, I, think, I, would, I would think on the personal level. Is what uh, this is talking about, but uh, maybe you say it would be wrong for you to condemn everybody who would who would fight in the military service. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I'm okay. wondering if the question means that. In other words, it's I can be I can follow my conscience in it and not participate in warfare. But if I'm a if I'm a true pacifist, does that mean that I also not only honor my conscience, but I condemn everybody else okay. that doesn't do the same thing I do on that question? I'm not sure, but there are some people obviously who take that take that approach. Okay. Um, uh, I don't know. Let, let, let me read what uh, Jim wrote. Jim quotes Alvin York, famous Tennessee veteran of World War One. Alvin York, who said, war is killing, and the book is again killing, so the book is again the war. Uh, Jim went on to say, I did not want to carry a gun because I did not want to kill anyone, so I joined the Air Force. Jim is a veteran. He joined the Air Force. He says, so I believe you can be a pacifist and object to war, but still serve your country. Okay. Uh, and there and there are some things that I think a person could do. And, our, and, and you know, we should be very thankful that we live in a place where people are allowed to, to do things that would protect their conscience. Uh, if, if you had a problem with serving in warfare, you could serve in other capacities that wouldn't that wouldn't violate you. For instance, you could be uh, uh, serving in the medical corps or something. There you'd be helping people, uh, and, and I don't think anybody could object to that. I think you have to be consistent, whatever view you take. You have to be, in other words, if it's wrong, some people have said, well, you could stay home and work in, in the factory. If it's wrong to shoot the bullet that kills the enemy soldier, it's also wrong to make the bullet right. that you shoot right. to kill the enemy. I think you got to be, whatever position you take on that, you've got to be consistent about that. All right. Uh, uh, but I, I don't, I do not believe that the Bible con- specifically condemns serving in the military, being a soldier. Uh, you know, we, we there are references, for instance, to Cornelius, who was a soldier in Acts ten. He was not told that he had to give that up. When soldiers came and spoke to John the Baptist. He didn't tell them they had to give up being a soldier. I'm trying to think where that is. Luke in chapter 3, yeah. uh, soldiers likewise demanded to him, saying, What shall we do? He said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Yeah, he didn't tell them you have to get out of being a soldier. Uh, but I want I, here's, here's the dilemma as I see it. And I know people who are soldiers, and I admire th- their service. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it. And I actually think, here's my thinking on this, that a Christian probably wouldn't make a very good soldier in in a time of war, in a time of conflict. 
Because in, in, in an all-out war, a Christian, I mean, a, a, a soldier has to kill with a passion. Mm-hmm. You know, he has to go after, he has to hate his enemy and kill him with a passion. And I don't think a Christian can do that no matter what. Right. And so, I mean, I, I think I think that, that in, in an all-out shooting war, a Christian probably wouldn't make a very good soldier in that kind of a setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may never have that kind of a war again. I don't know. Um, uh, Pat in Harvest, Alabama, says... He disagrees with us. He disagrees. He says a Christian is not authorized to kill for the USA war efforts, Matthew five forty three and following, any more than he is authorized to lie and commit adultery for USA war efforts. I, I disagree with you, Pat, on that. Uh, I think a Christian could be authorized to kill for the USA. Now, for instance, I'll give you, this is this is not the war question. Tie in the capital punishment question. Right, right. We we believe that the Bible teaches that capital punishment is ordained of God. Mm-hmm. That certain wrongdoers should be put to death for their sins, for their wickedness, for their evil. If God ordains that it should be so, it cannot be wrong to do what he wants to do. You know, I've talked to people about this, and you just get yourself in all these loops, and you can't, it's it's an impossible position to defend that it would be wrong to be the executioner. So in other words, so what I'm saying is there's, I think clearly there's an authorized killing. God authorizes that killing, and if he authorizes it's not wrong for a Christian or anybody else. To pull the switch on because the sin is a violation of God's will, yeah. and if God wants execution to occur, then God would want somebody to do it. Yeah. So how could that be a violation of God's will? That's I right. don't understand it. And and then tie in Romans thirteen. Romans thirteen says that the the powers that be are ordained of God, and they are His ministers to execute wrath upon those who do evil. First four verses of Romans thirteen. Therefore, for a Christian to serve in such capacity can't be wrong. Right. So uh, I, I, it's not a, an easy question, uh, and I, here's, here's the bottom line, in my opinion. You've got to be true to your conscience. Don't violate your conscience. You've got to be true to your conscience. And we should be grateful that we live in a place where we're given that freedom to honor our conscience in such matters. But I do not believe that you can make a blanket condemnation of people serving in the military and even killing in just causes. All right. I, I agree. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com is the email address to use. Let us know uh, did, did we get all of our answers in? Let's see. Uh, we got, yeah, I think so. I think okay. we got them. Um, quickly, the next question was, is it okay for Christians to pledge allegiance to the flag? Johnny in Leoma says, I've done study on this some years ago, but have forgotten the details. Today, if you don't fold your arms over to pledge to the flag, then you are considered unpatriot. I won't judge anybody for this matter. However, how was people patriotic in George Washington time, George Washington's time? What about during the uh, War of Northern Aggression? During Lincoln's War, there was no pledge to the flag. The pledge was written uh, by a liberal Baptist minister, Bellamy, who was a big advocate of socialism. In the early days of pledging the flag, children should... Uh, attention towards the flag with one arm stretched out with palms in the downward position. Sound familiar? This was the origin of Adolf Hitler's Nazi salute. So I think Johnny's taking position that we probably shouldn't. Pledge yeah, allegiance. I think so. And by the way, for those of you who are listening up north, that's what we call the Civil War in the South. We call it the War of Northern Aggression. That's what some people <laughs> call it. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I just I don't think there's any... Uh, a dictionary definition of the word allegiance is 
faithfulness to any person or thing. Well, we have allegiance to a lot of things. I have allegiance to my wife. I have allegiance to my children, to my family. I, if I if I work at a job, I have allegiance to my employer and to his to, to his purposes. That you're he, loyal. I'm loyal. I'm faithful to such people. It just it suggests literally the, the dictionary says faithfulness to any person or thing. So we we have allegiance to lots of things, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having allegiance to our country. Our first allegiance is to God, and we can't compromise our allegiance to God for any other allegiance. You can't compromise your allegiance to God for your allegiance to your mate or to your children, certainly not to your job and not to country. You can't pledge allegiance to your country above your allegiance to God. But I don't think that eliminates the the fact that you might pledge your allegiance to your country or any other number of things you might pledge your allegiance to. Okay. Um Jim says, uh, he answers Romans 13 and Matthew 21, 22, verse 21. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and uh, to God the things that are God's. Uh, so that's where Jim weighs in on uh, on the allegiance flag. Okay. Uh, we got a question from... I'd like to know where this listener is from. His name is Vlad, uh, and he does not indicate where he's from. His, his name is... His given name is Vladislav. Uh, so I've got to think he's from some Eastern European place, but I don't know what he didn't say. Vlad, if you're listening or if you hear this in the archives, uh, send us an email. Let, know, let us know where you're listening from. He asks simply, should Jesus Christ be worshipped? Okay, and uh, Jim has a concise answer that will help us in the, the time constraint that we have right now. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, wherefore God is also... Highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Real quickly from Revelation chapter 5, a scene around the throne of God, and it says in Revelation 5 verse 11, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I think there's clear there that he's worthy of worship. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, For to which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be unto me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, John chapter 9, beginning verse 35, um, Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped by the blind man that he had healed. Uh, Vlad asked some questions about verses like Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, where Jesus states that we should only worship the Father. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Uh, I think this was in the context of proving who Jesus was. In other words, if I'm just a man, don't worship me. You right. worship God. Right. So I think those verses are... Uh, showing that Jesus was making the point, I am God, and I am worthy of worship. Okay. All right. Uh, appreciate those uh, questions. You know, if we hurry, we're going to get these last two real quick. We've got to go well, fast. These two could be a whole program, but go ahead. Well, we may want That's to cover right. them more. Right. We'll cover and, them now. Uh, where do we draw the line between keeping our elderly relatives at home versus putting them in the nursing home? I know a lot of people are challenged with that decision, and it's a tough one. Um Jim says each one will have to decide. I think that's the answer. You've got to make your own determination on that. When one's parents are being placed in jeopardy due to inadequate medical help, then maybe that is the time. Sometimes situations develop where you just cannot provide for them at home, and they need the kind of care that 
professionals only can provide, and you're doing the loving thing to provide for them in that fashion. All right. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a judgment call. But we do have a responsibility in Ephesians 6, verse 2, to honor our father and mother. We do that, not with our just with our tongues, but with the way that we respond to them. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's, it obligates us to provide for our own. And in the context there, it talked about relatives providing for their elderly relatives. And so certainly we're obligated, but but placing them in a nursing facility may be the best way to fulfill that instruction. Okay. Uh, it's, right. it's a judgment call. I don't think anybody can say one way or the other. The last question. And the last question, what principles would apply to a situation? This comes from our friend Brad in North Alabama. What principles would apply to the situation of adult children living at home with their parents? You know, that's becoming more of a phenomenon, Jacob, Jacob where grown kids, maybe they've gone off to college, maybe they've even been out on their own for some time and suddenly they're back home. Okay. What about that? I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that with a Bible answer. All right. Um, uh, Jim says, well, what about if they're taking care of their parents? Why couldn't they live with them then? There would be a case where it would be a good thing. All right. I think I think Brad was suggesting the idea of maybe kids who won't work or, or you know, just sort of lazy or slothful and don't want to provide for themselves. And the Bible would certainly speak to that. But I don't think you could make a blanket statement saying it's either right or wrong. I think each circumstance, if it's a case of, of somebody who simply won't work, then Second Thessalonians three ten would apply. Right. Whoever won't work, he shouldn't eat either. Right. Even at home, he shouldn't eat. That's right. So I, I just think you'd have to know the circumstances before you could help to make a, a, a judgment call on that. Certainly, we have to be careful about judging those who are living at home. But uh, certainly, there are some principles that you mentioned that we need to be uh, industrious. We need to be working and uh, providing for our own needs. We got through. Tw- we got through all twelve. We didn't cover them very thoroughly, but we got through all twelve, Jacob. All right. Well, um, so. A good discussion tonight. Hopefully some helpful things. Uh, by the way, that question about uh, putting your parents in a nursing facility was from Don in Antioch, Tennessee. Okay. Good to hear from Don. Well, guys, uh, in the sound room, uh, we, we got it together finally, huh? Yeah, it was uh, somewhat mysterious. We're not exactly sure what happened, but uh, but uh, we got the echo resolved, so that's good news. That's, that's, I tell you, computers are a mysterious thing. It's not. It, it, you'd like to have it to be one to one. Do one thing, and the exact and this predictable thing will result. But it doesn't always happen that way. That's right. Well, the first one's down though, well, so well, the next one should go easy. Well, yeah. By the way, we need to give credit to Anthony and Dan, both fellows who are members of the church here at College View, who have done yeoman service and uh, work in our uh, sound booth for the first time. And uh, actually helped build the computer that's running the video tonight. So that's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. So well, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. We'll get the video. The video quality will improve as time goes on. Yeah, we'll get some better equipment. Lots of opportunity for some uh, some really fun stuff here, and so looking forward to the uh, episodes to come. And I haven't been able to see what you guys have been doing, so I'm looking forward to watching the replay and uh, seeing what uh, how that looks. Yeah, thanks again, man. And uh, so, yeah, thank you guys. And we look forward to uh, you guys being back to help with the video next time as well. Dad, thank you for the program. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for being out there. We look forward to you being back next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.